everybody, and welcome to Firehouse Talk. I recently invited Byron Temple and Creston Whitaker, two retired Dallas firefighters, to join me, my co-host Mike Otto, and retired DFD Captain Rhett Blankenship for a cup of coffee down at the Dallas Firefighters Museum. While we were there, I captured a little of their personal stories on tape. We'll get to those stories in a moment, but first a little background. Both Byron and Creston joined the department in 1978. Byron was a highly respected paramedic who rode 711, one of the busiest ambulances in the city for an almost unheard of 25 years of his 37-year career, much longer than most paramedics of that era would serve in that capacity. His medical skills were exceptional, but he is probably best known for his personality and keen sense of humor. Perhaps it was that ability to keep it light and see the humor in things that allowed him to avoid the burnout that so many paramedics experience. Creston had an unusual background in that, although he didn't play college football, he did play in the NFL before joining the fire department. We'll hear a little about his years as a multi-sport athlete, as well as his distinguished fire service career. Now, on to our conversation. So, Crest, what made you want to be a firefighter? How did this happen? Actually, I was uh, uh, trying to uh, develop a uh, a real estate business, and I had a cousin in Illinois who was a firefighter, and I had no uh, uh, experience uh, with the department as far as knowing uh, when the shifts, shift hours were or, or how it worked. But uh, I just noticed that every time that I would go to Illinois, he was off work, and uh, <laughs> and I asked him. I said, "Well, why? Are, you know, what kind of work do you do?" And he says, "Well, I'm a firefighter." And so that opened my eyes initially to it because I felt that uh, again initially I would uh, like to have uh, a profession where I could. Uh, uh, have extra time to spend on uh, real estate or other activities. And I say initially because uh, I found out soon enough when I joined that uh, uh, that I had the love for the department and uh, the off time was actually secondary. Were you living in Texas at the time? And is that how you came to apply with Dallas? Or how did you uh, end up choosing Dallas? Yes, I was in uh, uh, Dallas at the time, and uh, I was just – to go back for family reunions or visit uh, uh, different uh, relatives. But uh, I just couldn't help but notice he was always off work. He never was working <laughs> when I got there. Yeah. Now, before you joined the fire department, uh, you had been an athlete in college, right? Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, what was your sport? Well, actually, I participated in two sports. I participated in uh, uh, basketball at uh, University of North Texas and also in track. And uh, and I was uh, honored to be inducted in, into their Hall of Fame for basketball and track um, in uh, the middle 90s, I believe it was. And so after you left UNT, uh, did you continue with sports for a period of time? Yes, I did. I uh, uh, played uh, four years of uh, professional football in the NFL. Um, I know it seemed strange for people that knew me and knew that I played basketball and ran track in 
college, but um, I was um, a little discouraged uh, because in basketball, the Milwaukee Bucks had indicated that they were going to uh, draft me. And uh, um, when they uh, uh, finally uh, were able to attain some guy named um, – I think his name was Lou Alcindor. <laughs> uh, and they paid him a record about a money or what have you. And so we weren't able to come to any kind of terms. So <laughs> I decided that uh, I might consider football and uh, a uh, all-pro safety with the L.A. Rams, a guy uh, by the name of Eddie Metter, uh, lived in Denton at the time. And he had heard that I – uh, had, was going to try out with the Dallas Cowboys. And so he contacted the Rams organization, and George Allen was the coach at that time. And uh, they sent a scout down, and uh, one thing led to another, and I was able to uh, – they offered me a contract. And uh, so I participated uh, two years with the Rams and two years with the New Orleans Saints. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Very interesting. So after after that – you got on with the Dallas Fire Department. That would have been what year? I joined the Dallas Fire Department in uh, February of 1978. And uh, then after rookie school, where did you get assigned? My first uh, assignment was at uh, three fire station. And uh, I'll never forget coming in uh, first day as a rookie, and uh, I've got all my equipment that I'm, I'm on my shoulders and and carrying everything I can. And no sooner than I got in the door, the bell hit. And uh, so I was a little stunned, but uh, uh, Captain Waxman uh was the captain, and, and they were all uh, going to the apparatus. I was in the apparatus, apparatus room, and he turned to me and he said, get on something. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Richard Walks, man. <laughs> man. So uh, your uh, initial experiences at the fire station, was that a uh, – an adventure or intimidating or what was it like at the, uh, your first days there? I think initially, uh, uh, like most rookies, I was, uh, a little bit intimidated, uh, just by, uh, the various challenges and things would be faced with. Um, uh, it took a while to, to understand, um, uh, uh, the mindset of many of the uh, uh, firefighters, the agitation and things that go goes on. But uh, uh, at that particular station, uh, which Threes was extremely busy, uh, uh, within um, oh, three months, uh, I think I had uh, participated in first, second, third, fourth, and fifth alarm fire uh in three months time at the station and a fifth alarm fire was the at that time was the highest uh rated fire that you could have and then uh paramedic school uh sometime within that first year or two no actually uh uh well i had initially gone to paramedic school but uh i had a uh, uh death in the family and so i 
I had to leave paramedic school, and I returned uh, probably about two years later, mm. um, uh, which the significance of it was that uh, our class, our rookie class, was the first class that had signed the waiver, the mandatory waiver, indicating that you must go to paramedic school and you must pass paramedic school. If not, then you were terminated from the department. So uh, there was a lot of pressure on people when uh, when they went into uh, into paramedic school. <clears throat> yeah, a lot, <laughs> man. <laughs> so, uh, where did you get assigned to out of paramedic school? My first station, I believe it was twenty. Uh, no, excuse me, uh, it was a uh, six fire station, mm-hmm. and. Again, uh, at that time, uh, I, uh, it was uh, it was the number one or the busiest station in the city, and uh, I uh, felt that it was uh, uh, a, a big challenge. And uh, one of the unusual things that took place there was that uh, uh, we were uh, at the table eating dinner one night, and we looked out the uh, 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 the dining room window, and we saw the uh, ambulance, the rescue, as as we call them now, uh, going down the uh, Harwood Harwood Avenue. Now, all of us were sitting at the table, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it dawned on us that uh, somebody has, has stolen the ambulance, and uh, sure enough, uh, they had, and uh, we got to the engine, called the police, and um, after about, uh, oh, 25, 30 minutes later, we were able to, or they were able to apprehend uh, the person that, uh, that had taken it. So during your time on the fire department, did you have any, uh, any close calls at an incident where you felt like maybe uh, your life was uh, in danger? Yes, I did. I, um, again, probably had been on the department about two years, and uh, when I was uh, at three stations still, uh, we got a call for a um, uh, uh, a one alarm fire initially. And, uh, when we arrived, of course we saw the smoke and things and we could see the flames coming out of the building and, and, uh, coming up the sidewalk was this lady saying the proverbial somebody's in there. <laughs> well, that, uh, caused me to probably, um, uh, react uh, a little differently than than I probably should have, and what I was trained to do, because immediately I jumped off the the apparatus, and of course, back in those days, we rode on the tailboard, so I was on the tailboard, and uh, and I didn't realize that when I got off the apparatus to go into the building, I didn't have my my mask, my. Uh, 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 S-U-B-A. <clears throat> so, uh, but I had made the commitment to, to go and, and she had shown me where, where to go. 
And so uh, I was on the second floor. I got up to the top of the floor, and uh, I wasn't able to see anything because of the smoke. So I dropped to my knees, which is symbolic, (laughs) (laughs) and I saw this foot sticking up. And so without the mask or anything, I, I, you know, I just went ahead and had my prayer while I was there on my knees and went on in and I was able to, uh, to get the citizen. However, as I, just as soon as I got in the door, uh, the backdraft caused the door to blow shut. And by that time, fortunately, my, uh, captain and, um, uh, one of, one of the other, uh, uh, firefighters that uh, was with him, they had seen that I had, had gone up, up the stairs. And so they were following me and I heard them calling my name. And, uh, and so I mumbled and tried to make as much noise as I could, uh, and still, you know, obtain, attain my oxygen. Uh, and, uh, when they realized that I was in which apartment I was in, then they kicked the door in. And at that time, uh, I had the citizen, uh, on my shoulder and, uh, came on out and, uh, was able to, uh, uh, carry him just to the top of the stairs. And then that's when I was relieved. And, uh, I took the time to, uh, regurgitate. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And that was, uh, 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 fortunately, uh, uh, my captain, uh, old guy named Dirty Trimble. <laughs> and uh, Dirty called my wife that night and told her what had happened. And um, uh, when I got home that next morning, my three-year-old son met me at the door, and he asked me, he says, Daddy, are you brave? And I, that was the greatest reward I could have, could have ever received. I did receive the Distinguished Service Award for that, but that reward from that three-year-old who now is a captain currently with the Dallas Fire Department was very special. One of the other gentlemen with us today is Byron Temple who joined the department in 1978. Byron, what led you to a career in the fire service? It was funny. I started off on the police side with Dallas. I was was at North Texas. I quit the basketball team, and uh, somebody told me about the cadet program with the police department. And they said, you work 20 hours a week, and you get half the salary. I mean, that's scholarship. (laughs) So I started doing that, and then um, I turned over, became a police officer, uh, but I was 21, and they gave me Monday and Tuesday night off working midnight shift. And I was a party animal. You know, was, <laughs> ain't nothing going on on Monday, Tuesday night. So uh, my brother was working at the airport, DFW Airport. Mm-hmm. He said, you can come out here, get dual train, police and fire, and then try to go into what I wanted to do be a sky marshal. And I said, okay, I like that. So I left Dallas, went out to the airport, got trained, went to another academy, and after I came out, that's when they came out with the magnetometers and they were, you know, you had to go through the metal detectors and they got the cameras and everything. So they got rid of the sky marshals. So now I'm at the airport and I'm hating it out here. <laughs> and Willie Cornell, he left the airport, went to Dallas Fire Department. He said, man, y'all think about being a fireman. 
I said, no, there'll be no fireman. He said, man, you work 10 days a month. I was, then the light bulb, you know, it came on then. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, 10 days a month? He said, every day you go in is Friday. I said, good. I went ahead and went and talked to old Wilts Bailey. Two and a half weeks later, I was hired on. <laughs> what rookie class were you in? 182. 182, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, where'd you go out of rookie school? Went to 24s. 24s? Chief Lamar. Oh, yeah. And I, was, I mean, I was petrified. I didn't know any. I mean, I got over there, and uh, we had a fire right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And I heard him on the radio pulling up. We got two ducks in a pond, and I <laughs> didn't have a clue. And that was his. You know, he, he always had an acronym for um, two alarm, three alarm, four alarm. Yeah. And so he would come out with saying the alarm officer knew what he was talking about. And I was, I don't know what's going on. So, yeah, he was. He was, he was some character. <laughs> Two ducks in a pod. Yeah. Wow. And so um, were you there long before you went to paramedic school? No, I was only there for about a month, and they sent me to 55s. Really? And it was like night and day. I went wow. from being super busy mm-hmm. to 55s, where I think my first five shifts, we didn't make a run. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So who would have been the officer at 55s? Uh, Marsh. Okay. Right, Yates Marsh. Yates Marsh, yeah. yeah nice guy. Yeah, he was a great guy. And uh, we, I mean, I had um, back then they were big into uh, playing cards. Oh, huh. So my job was to stay up front, <clears throat> answer the door, <clears throat> answer the phones, because you know, and that's all I did. <laughs> <laughs> and they played cards while played you were cards. doing that. You did it well. <laughs> I did it well. <laughs> there wasn't any money exchanged in those card games, was it? Yes, there? it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was the deputy chief would come on. I mean, it was big time card games. Good. So, yes. But um, and oh. Uh, His wife will call 50 times a day and it disrupt the game. So, Chief, I mean, Marsh told me, because I played a ba- bunch of basketball back then. He said, I tell you what, anytime you have a game, as long as you step there all day and answer that phone and tell her that he's out on a run, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to sell it. She's got no problem with that. <laughs> so she, she finally got, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, y'all can't be that busy. She came up there. <laughs> and she was hot cussing <laughs> <laughs> so uh after being at 55 is a while i would imagine paramedic school next yeah. um it was funny because it was a friday evening I, the main line rings and cap answers it and then he says okay and he hangs up and he's buying you got bmt school at monday on monday i said where he said i don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going out there to, you know, they told me to park over there where the clinic was, yeah. you know, cross street. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was all over the hospital trying to find trying to this place. Where supposed to and be. I finally <laughs> found it. And I said, man, this is crazy. And they told us, okay, you'll go to paramedic school. Then you'll go back to the station. I said, okay, I can, I can deal with that. So yeah. I went to paramedic school. Mm-hmm. We got through, uh, no, the EMT school. We got through that Friday again. They told us as we were leaving, y'all need to be back Monday for paramedic school. I said, well, so much for going back to the station. So we, just, <laughs> we went through everything, just straight through. Wow. And uh, so where did you end up riding the ambulance? Went two shifts to 34s. Mm-hmm. Never saw the ambulance. <clears throat> they didn't speak to me. Mm. Nothing. I mean, they just told me to, you're on this, and they do just, you know, whatever. Wow. Fine with me. So I went in my little corner and just stayed, you know, just stayed to myself. And uh, it, it was horrible. And at that time, you got your vacation 
uh, by how much time you had on. You had to take your five shifts. So I came out, got over there in February, and they said, when I came in that third shift, they said, well, you're on vacation. Okay. <laughs> so I leave, go home, all five shifts, I come back from five shifts, and they said, well, no, you've been transferred. Nobody called me, nothing. <laughs> wow. And they transferred me to 11s, King Carl. Oh. So I'm leaving from 34s, get to 11s. Now it's about 710, 15. King Carl is eating my ass out for being late. I said, well, Cap, I said, I went into the station over there. They didn't even tell me until a few minutes ago that I'd been transferred. Nobody told me nothing. They had to call you. I'm telling you, Cap, they, nobody called me. They didn't tell me anything. <laughs> and so, well, he, he rode me for about two years. I yes. mean, I could do nothing, but that was everybody. Mm. I mean, I mean, that's one thing I say yeah. about him. He was not prejudiced. Yeah, that was, was everybody. He hated everybody. Everybody. <laughs> after two years, I could do no wrong. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned 34s in those first couple shifts, and nobody spoke with you. Uh, I mean, literally. I mean, is that, uh, is that so? No training. No. Tell me. They told me what I was riding, and that was it. Mm. Interesting. What was your perception of that at the time? If you don't mind me asking. I mean, was, this, was it just this is the way we treat our rookies around here? Or did well, we... after I got to looking around, I saw I was the only, I was the only uh, person of color on all three shifts. I kind of figured what that was, but, <laughs> you know, but okay. I wasn't going to lose no sleep over it. You right, know? right, right. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I just wondered what your perception was. Yeah. No, I knew they were um, not very happy for me to be there, and, and they told me that um, I couldn't ride the ambulance, you know, and, I, you know, it, that's fine, you know, if that's what you say. But, okay. Okay, so ended up over at uh, 11s with King Carl. And uh, did you end up staying at 11s very long? I only stayed there 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> on 7-Eleven. So... It ended up being a pretty fun place to work. Oh, it was great. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, super, super busy. I didn't realize how busy and how tired I was until I left there. Yeah. And I went to 14s, and we didn't make runs after 7, 8 at night, and I was, because, you know, Captain tell yeah. you, we and Mike, too, we had yeah. a, a little uh, pot going, put in a dollar a day, mm -hmm. and then whoever had to watch, when well, nobody went out, yep. you know, um, until that next morning after 10 o'clock, yep. you got all the money. And we bought all kind of stuff for the station because nobody ever got that pot. <laughs> I think it was only two times. It happened like the first week a guy got it, yeah. and yeah. then it didn't happen again for years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had a lot of money stored up I'll just bet. from that. Yeah, because yeah, on a typical night at 11s, you're going up and down those stairs, up and down those everybody. stairs. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, everybody. Well, didn't uh, 11s have a, a, a reputation for – uh, rookies or people for the first time coming to that station it's, it's that the uh, there's a window uh, up above the entrance and it seemed like a lot of people would get doused uh, as they came in from the parking lot. The, the thing was, it was more than one window. People just mm -hmm. always, well, they called it the Phantom. Nobody ever saw what happened. They probably knew who it was, <laughs> but you know, you never. I, I never was seen doing it. In fact, one time I even got up in the bed of the uh, truck, and I was laying down in the in, with the, in the ladder bed when the engine came back in and got a guy, and he was still looking up, you know, <laughs> looking upstairs, looking, you know, so through the bucket on him. I was up on the top of the truck. But yeah, we had a ball. It was it was a great station. Oh, that's good. I mean, there's some great guys there too. Yeah. Uh, J.C. Anderson. 
Oh, man. Uh, yeah, we got some J.C. Anderson stories. And the, <laughs> the water fights were legendary before the remodel. When they remodeled it uh, and everything was new, yeah. that old st- but it used yeah. to be, you know, pulling off cross legs and just pulling them upstairs. All the way upstairs. Oh, yeah. Water just pouring through the pole holes. <laughs> because it, the station was already like 75 years old yeah. and in disrepair, and everybody thought, well, what, what's a little water going to do? It's not going to So as I understand it, you were paramedic of the year in 1994. Right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, was there a particular incident that uh, you think resulted in that, or was that just kind of an overall uh, it work was a, ethic? Or? Probably overall. Yeah. And, um, because they would send me most of the time some of the worst mm-hmm. um, interns. Yeah. So they always need a little extra help in order to be able right. to pass their internship. Right. Yeah. And and someone that could. I could work with just about just about anybody, mm-hmm. you know, you know, so they knew that I wasn't just going to, you know, blow them off and, you know, I'm going to give them a fair shot. Um, and I, you know, I enjoyed riding animals because yeah. I always told them that if you go out and if you're nice to people, mm-hmm. I don't care if you do something wrong, they're not going to complain on you. If, if you treat them right, you'll never have a problem. And so I, you know, I never had a problem on the animals and it was, it was fun. Also, you worked uh, off duty, actually teaching uh, paramedic school or something yeah, that like was that. A, another funny story. Yeah. Um, Mainline rings. I pick it up, and it was a female, and she says, "This is Debbie Case, and hey, Byron, well, we were thinking about, you know, would you like to become um, an instructor?" Mm-hmm. And I hung up. I said, "No, they don't want me." Because <laughs> I mean, we, the nurses come out, we give them hell at the station. You know, yeah. we just, yeah. I mean, we wouldn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, but they always. You know, they always thought they were so much better than us, mm-hmm. and we would prove them that, you know, that, you know, yeah, you're good in the classroom, but when we get out in the streets, you know, and then we can really show you something. Yeah. So, um, and then when she called, she had the chief <laughs> call me and say for me to call her. Really? You know, before yeah. I would believe it, because I said, ain't no way they were asking for me. <laughs> but once I got there, I enjoyed it, um, you know, trying to help the guys and everything. Cause yeah. Because they had some instructors out there, you know, y'all came through, I mean, mm-hmm. they just... They could treat you like dirt because they knew that you had to pass, mm-hmm. or you gonna lose your job. Mm-hmm. And you know, I didn't, I didn't like that. So, yeah. you know, they're trying to help. So, uh, you were actually a paramedic for how many years? Twenty five. Yeah. So, deliver any babies during that time? About nine. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a lot. I understand. Crest may actually have your record uh, beaten, though. How many babies did you deliver, Crest? I delivered 16. <laughs> That's amazing. That well, is amazing. And I think what what's, was unique back in that time was that uh, women didn't have the type of prenatal care that mm-hmm. they have now. Uh, so it, and I'm sure Byron, you will agree that it was wasn't unusual for a baby to be delivered every week, you know, uh, within the Dallas Fire Department somewhere. Oh yeah. But one of the unique things uh, about it was that um, after I had delivered this one particular baby, um, and if, in fact that was in uh, in the bedroom of their house and wasn't even in the ambulance, you know, it uh, was time. But uh, 
At any rate, uh, the hospital, uh, Methodist on Colorado, unlike any other time before, said that I had to sign the birth certificate. Because normally the doctors, you know, they'll do a DNC or whatever, and, and they'll sign it. And they couriered that uh, uh, birth certificate out to the fire station. I signed it. They gave me a copy of it. And I have it to this day on my wall. But because of uh, the fact that uh, I, I have it, uh, uh, I had retained the uh, birth certificate, I knew the name of the of the little girl. Thirteen years later, when I was substitute teaching at a junior high school, I saw this name. And uh, after the class, I called the girl up and I asked her, I said, where were you born? She said, I was born at home. The paramedics delivered me. <laughs> I said, I'm the paramedic that delivers you. <laughs> and uh, to this day, we have made contact. She uh, is a mother now, and she has four children. Well, in fact, she has a grandchild now. Uh, but uh, but that was really special, and uh, uh, I cherish uh, that moment. But all because uh, they required me to sign the birth certificate. And that That's was the first time I ever heard of yeah. Have you ever yeah. heard of it? I'd, I'd never I'd never had it happen to me before until that one particular time and they they carried it wow. out to this fire station and so uh, that was pretty special yeah. yeah that's amazing wow So what about on the trauma side of things? A uh, lot of uh, shootings and stabbings on 7-Eleven? Oh, yeah. It was there for a stretch, uh, probably in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Every weekend, there was a shooting or a stabbing all up and down mm-hmm. Maple. We mm-hmm. had two sets of projects mm-hmm. um, that we answered also. And it was what was unique about 11s. You had some of the richest people in the city mm-hmm. along with two sets of projects. And mm-hmm. within about three miles, and it's just it's just unique. You would yeah. never see that. You go down Turtle Creek, and they got houses with, <laughs> with garages, I mean, with uh, elevators. Mm-hmm. And then you can go right across 75 right there and projects. Right. <laughs> and so. It's interesting. Uh, nowadays, you know, the city of Dallas' homicide rate has been hovering at a little over 200, I think, for the last several years, give yeah. or take, up and down a little bit. But that 80s that you referred to, when we were actually setting homicide records, we were over 500 yeah. homicides within the city limits <laughs> right. of Dallas wow. for that's, several years that's yeah. when in a row. The posse was here, too, the big gang, remember? Yeah, the Jamaican. Yeah. Jamaican, yeah. 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 the posse, when they came. Right. And, in fact, you remember when um, he got in a shootout, the leader of them, and killer, and then they took put him in Parkland. And you remember they came, stormed mm-hmm. the hospital to break him out. And that's when they finally went ahead and got armed officers in Parkland because of that. Oh, yeah, they were, they, were, they yeah. came in to shoot. I mean, they were shooting them yeah. out, trying to get them out the hospital. Hmm. But I mean, it was I did not know every that. weekend. It was a week. shooting gallery. Yeah, they yeah. would. Um, it was a violent would, city. They would make they would make the, um, examples out of people. Like if you did them wrong with the mm-hmm. drugs, mm-hmm. like I remember over in South Dallas, we made that one run where they stacked about seven of them in the bathtub, mm-hmm. and one of them was alive. He played dead. And, you know, we were just taking bodies off, and then, you know, he kind of opened his eyes, and it scared me like I don't know what, but he was alive. Wow. Yeah, but they – and then uh, we had one over in projects over off Kings 
Um, he was a friend of one of the running backs of uh, SMU, and they meant to kill him. He had a 300 ZX. They shot him 16 times, but it was his buddy. It wasn't him. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And SMU kept saying that he was leaving the team for personal reasons and stuff. No, they were hiding him. Yeah, big time running back. He came in right after Dickerson. Hmm. Where did you mostly ride the ambulance crest? Primarily at threes and sixes. Okay. And I can both of which were always like neck and neck. For oh yeah, yeah. They were they were they were always up there. Um, and again, back at that time, and I'm sure Byron, you can uh, relate to that. Uh, there was a lot of lot of trauma calls anyway, but yeah. uh, but there wasn't uh, any automatic dispatch of the police. Right. Uh, you know, if you needed the police, you would call them. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I can recall an incident where we had uh, uh, a man had, that had been shot, and he was on the he was on the sidewalk, <clears throat> and uh, so. The my partner and I rolled up, and of course, there's always a crowd of people, you know, for shootings and stabbings and things. There may be 50, 60 people, you know, standing around waiting on the ambulance and they'd wave us in. But at any rate, we uh, went up to the patient, and sure enough, he had been shot. And uh, uh, my partner uh, went back to uh, uh, get the stretcher, and and uh, the patient was conscious and he was talking, and uh. Uh, I was trying to find out what had happened, or um, and he said, "Well, it, uh, it he just did it all of a sudden and was just kind of disoriented, but uh, which I could understand." And this guy kept coming up to me that was on the side saying, "Is he going to live? Is he going to live?" You know, and I said, "Please, you know, please stay back and give us a chance to assess him." And is he going to live? Is he going to live? And after the third time, you know, to get the guy off my back, I said, I think he's going to make it. The guy pulls out his gun and shoots him. He was the guy that had originally shot him, and uh, he finished him off. And from that moment on, once we reported that incident, uh, they started uh, dispatching uh, police, police <laughs> for uh, uh, shootings uh, and stabbings and things automatically. And uh, I was at sixes at that time, and uh, uh, and it really uh, because uh, when that incident happened, I, I immediately, uh, you know, of course, called for the police and and started backpedaling myself, and and the guy didn't do us any harm at all. Uh, in fact, he laid the gun down and remained there until the police arrived. Wow! He just wanted him dead. <laughs> That was actually my next, my next yes, question. Yes. Is, do we know why he wanted it? <laughs> yeah, no. He may have had a good reason for right, wanting it. Right. Yeah, that I didn't know, but, uh, uh, but it is wow. mission accomplished. Byron, is it true that I wasn't at 11s when they started the random drug testing, but I heard that you weren't too thrilled about it happening and that they had come in there and wanted you to give them a sample and you came back with something different than what they wanted. Is that true? It wasn't that I was not happy. They were trying to catch somebody at our station and they wouldn't admit it. 
mm-hmm. because they just kept coming back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like some stations might get tested once, and they came to our stations like four times in four months. Mm-hmm. And you know who they were trying to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, she told me to, you know, go give her a sample. So I went, I bought some uh, Mountain Dew. And so I went to the bathroom, and I got a little pebble, and I dropped it in there. And I came out, and I was shaking. And I was like, I think I, I, think I just did a stone. <laughs> <laughs> and then she looked at the color of the boy, and she was hot. <laughs> she was hot. But I had to go back in there and go ahead and do my regular, you know, thing. <laughs> I mean, they came so much, we even knew their first names. That's how they were coming. Wow. So, you rode for 24 years? 25. 25. You rode for how many years? I was uh, a paramedic for 13 years. 13 years, okay. Which is still, especially at that time, was a pretty long time, I would think. Yes, yes. I uh, Fortunately, I... I I promoted out, and okay. um, uh, uh, when I, you know, made lieutenant, then. Uh, and did uh, you go to a seven eighty job, or what was your first lieutenant's position? My first lieutenant's position was uh, at at a fire station itself, okay. Okay. Um, and uh, in fact, it was out at forty uh, threes, mm-hmm. and uh, and again at that time, lieutenants were not shift officers themselves every station had a captain mm-hmm. and uh, a lieutenant even if it was a single uh, company house uh, uh, and uh, I was uh, blessed to have a you know a great great captain that, that kind of schooled me along and uh, and uh, I think that that training uh, was 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 very very important and and a key to to me developing the confidence and things because uh i don't know if we mentioned earlier or not but when uh byron and i both first came on in in 78 79 along in there i mean there were no black officers uh on the department and um uh there were a few when 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 i became lieutenant but uh um, but at, at that time, while I was at 43s, then they decided that they were going to allow lieutenants to, um, go to stations and actually be the shift officer. And, um, and if it's a single company house within, there'd be one captain and two lieutenants on the other shifts. And so, uh, I had the opportunity to go to 51s and, and I was a shift officer and that was, um, um, real gratifying, challenging, uh, situation, certainly, uh, as a lieutenant. So, Chris, there a minute ago, you mentioned, uh, a captain of 43s that really mentored and helped you as a young officer when you were just made lieutenant, uh, could you tell us who that was? Yes, that was Captain Gary Lovell. Oh, uh, great guy. And he really spent a lot of time uh, with me. And I'll never forget that when uh, when I left 43s, and that was the time when um, uh, I was assigned to uh, 51s, a station, um, as the shift officer. Um, and I would be responsible to uh, – um, manage the shift 
of supervising the shift. And I remember Gary turned to me and he says, Creston, now when you go over to that station, keep in mind that that station was running fine before you got there. And that was the best advice uh, I could ever receive. And, uh, you know, and of course, what he was saying is you know, don't try to reinvent the wheel or anything like that. You know, just uh, um, make changes that are needed. But, uh, uh, but you know, just uh, uh, be practical about uh, uh, how you handle things. And when you do make changes that uh, that they are necessary changes. And uh, anyway, I, I certainly uh, appreciated uh, that advice. I've never forgotten that. You mentioned uh, uh, him being uh, or uh, helping you out a lot. For both, the question for both of y'all is: Who did y'all find as good mentors in the department? People that you really looked up to, uh, who uh, who impressed you and, and gave you some good insights on how to survive in the fire department, or or words of wisdom, or for me. People won't believe it, but it was actually was King Carl. I had a feeling you were going to say they, that. I mean, they had. I mean, they were people on the department that, if they could, they would kill that man. I mean, they <laughs> hated him. And when I worked there at first, you know, there's no way I, you know, I hated him too. But I learned so much from him, and from what I learned from him, I knew what I could and what I couldn't do. And that's what you know. I knew, like I said, if I went somewhere and I wasn't treated right. I knew how to get around it. You know, I, I could do all the way up to that point where, you know, I'll keep me from getting in trouble, but I'll, you know that I know what you're doing. You know, so, I mean, he I, he really helped me a lot. I mean. Anybody else that comes to mind? You were good. Oh. That's what he was fishing. <laughs> no, no, no. I wasn't at all. Well, how many people did you go through? No, no, but you got more than one person. I, I don't mean yeah, no, no, I wasn't no, trying you, to fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. You, you were. You, you, you were good. And um, but a lot of the lieutenants came through 11s. I mean, we had some great lieutenants. I mean, Otto was good. Um, David Kenny. I mean, we had some 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 oh, great guys right. come through. Yep. And uh, what's funny about David Kenny was he couldn't stand um, Thornton. Chief Thornton was our chief because Chief Thornton wanted you to know he was the smartest man in the world. Uh, so he wasn't. And so, <laughs> so David Kenny wanted him to think he was the dumbest man in the department. Every time he came over, he would do something just crazy, just drive Thornton crazy. I mean, we, we had a ball just laughing at Kenny. So, David Kenny is a good one. And at some point, you made a transition and went to communications. Yes, I... Um, uh, in fact, Roland Gomez was the deputy, I think, at that time, and uh, seems to be that uh, that's when uh, the alarm office changed their shifts from three until four, four shifts. Uh, so uh, the firefighters in the alarm office were working 24 hours, and uh, they would be off 72, and of course, uh, that appealed to me, <clears throat> and so I remember calling Chief Gomez and uh, expressing my interest, uh, and he said that, uh, well, there were a few things I would need to do and to, to uh, provide him with a resume, which I did. 
And uh, about uh, four months later, uh, I was assigned to the alarm office, and I was the first African-American officer to work in the alarm office. Uh, and that was challenging because, as you know, uh, Chuck, you work down there uh, yourself. Uh, anybody that goes into the alarm office, whether you're a, a, a captain or a or uh or a non officer uh you're at a loss for uh for weeks or maybe months while you're down there you know it is so uh um uh challenging and, i think and, uh, uh david henry uh and probably others too but i know david henry told me it takes at least a year to get halfway comfortable mm-hmm. with this and at least Two years to really get good at it, and I think that was That's, true. There's no question about it. And uh, of course, David was down there and and helped assist me in, in what I was doing. And 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 then uh, probably about six months after I had been down there, uh, the captain that was on the shift uh, uh, was unable to work, and they uh, didn't replace uh, him, and so. I was the um, uh, only officer uh, on the floor during our shift uh, at that time for about a year, <clears throat> and wow. uh, that was was pretty challenging. But yeah. uh, um, that was probably the best tour of duty that I had with the fire department because it gave me the type of insight within the department that I I never uh, really had except for rookie school, but uh, but even then it reinforced that because you can see the practical aspects of why an engine goes with uh, an ambulance or, or how calls come in or why an ambulance doesn't show up on time or, or the confusion in, on the telephone when people are calling in. You get uh, a firsthand experience in that. And so that, that really helped me tremendously uh, throughout my career. Yeah, if you really want to know how the fire department works, that's a great place to to see it from yeah. the inside out. Yeah, uh, y'all should have been there when uh, there was no buy tail. Remember, at the fire department they ran two eighty seven, yeah. and a little bit of room that they would sit in. They got eight hour shifts. They leave from the alarm office, come to the hospital. Oh yes, and sit in that little room. And we called into them. You know, that was two eighty seven. That's what we. That was a, uh, mm-hmm. the call number for them. Okay, and yeah, they they caught it. <laughs> they, yeah, they they oh. took all the ambulance calls. Wow. I remember um, in paramedic school uh, going out there and seeing uh, uh, there was a dispatcher out there named Glenn Robbins. Do you remember Glenn Robbins? Everybody called him Mongo. Yeah. Yeah. Mongo. Yeah. Yeah. There was uh, some nurse that was being real nice to me and, you know, kind of cute. And uh, Glenn said, stay away from her. That's the one that got all them guys in trouble. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Down at City Hall. Boy. Oh, yeah, boy. Remember that? Yeah. Man. Damn, man, man. That was back in the days when we didn't get – there was no gloves on the ambulance except what was in the mm-hmm. OB kit. So right. whatever right. blood or yeah. whatever you got on your hands, <clears throat> you can and, walk back to Bytel and everybody, a bunch of paramedics <clears throat> sitting around with – Blood caked hands, drinking a cup of coffee, just like. <laughs> yeah. but back then, if you got bloodied up, it was yeah. like going in the fire and get smoked up. I mean, you were well, exactly. That was, that's exactly true. That and was a sign right there. You were real medic. Yeah, and 
I had, clean up or anything. Yeah, I had gotten at a point where you know, I uh, the, the blood and guts was was a problem for me. You know, it used to be you know a lot of guys. You know, man, that that shows your honor and all that stuff. And so I started wearing gloves before the department, uh, you know, administered them. And I had these dishwashing gloves, you know, just go three fours <laughs> up your arm and things. And there was never a time that I, going into the hospital, that those nurses and things, why are you wearing gloves? Why are you wearing gloves? And I did, that happened for a better part of a year, I remember. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it, 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 hey, you know, you might ought to start wearing. You were ahead of your time. Yeah, yeah I, I was AIDS in that. Epi- with yeah, the AIDS, AIDS epidemic. Yeah. It just, you know, because I had yeah. that thing about, I didn't like being in blood right. and guts and all that stuff. Yep. and. Uh, and I'll never forget uh, that that they everybody the doctors and nurses mm-hmm. all of them you know, how come you weren't gloves you yeah. know and but you remember and, on the side of the station had the big bin where we threw all the oh, dirty the sheets, sheets and oh, stunk mm-hmm. it was the Ooh. grossest thing on oh. the whole fire department yeah, yeah and bad. as they were phasing in gloves remember they bought us every position or they bought autopsy gloves but you right. shared them they were right. kind of thicker and bigger and yep. then you would like once you used them mm-hmm. you washed them out and then you, right yeah. You, Leave them for the next shift. They right. were yeah. <laughs> that wow. way. They didn't have to buy like single boxes. Oh, of well. wow! I want, to, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago. You're talking about, you know, you'd started wearing gloves before other people did, before the AIDS epidemic. Didn't really like the blood and guts and all, and that made me think, um, you know, as far as you know, people are like, what you know did. Did the blood and guts bother you and stuff? And to me, it really didn't. But was always eerie to me was like, imagine what people's last moments were like. Uh, and I'm thinking of like where I've uh, got somebody, a stabbing victim, and you see the defensive wounds where their hands are cut in mm-hmm. two as they were holding their hands up to try to fend off the knife. And I'm thinking, you know, what was this person's thoughts at, at this point mm-hmm. in time? And I'm wondering since... Y'all both rode the ambulance for a long time. Was there anything that really bothered you? Was it the blood and guts? Was it uh, some or something like, uh, you know, seeing children or imagining like I did what their last moments was like? Was there anything that ever caused you to lie in bed at night a little bit and be thinking thoughts instead of getting back to sleep? For me, mm-hmm. it would be, uh, for one, kids. That was the hardest call if you had a a, a trauma or any mm-hmm. kind of call on a kid and it didn't make it. That that's the hardest mm-hmm. one. And the second would be uh if it was somebody you knew. Mm. And and we've had I've had to work on firemen. Uh what's his name from threes that got hit? Um that time Russell about, Jones. Yeah. Russell Jones. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. And he took his last breath and we intubated him and brought him back. Mm. And then he fought us all the way to, you know, after we got him intubated, he fought us all the way back to the uh, to the hospital. And those kind of calls that you always remember. And it was before we knew about PTSD. Yeah. And once we started getting that training, right? I, di- I didn't think it was really any good until mm-hmm. I started, you know, listening to what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking about some of the stuff that I went through. And it's, yeah, that, that's true. And it really happens. You know, you think yeah. about it. Um, you made a call. Mm-hmm. A kid in a wreck got thrown out. Looked just like his son, same age, everything. Mm. And he couldn't ride the ambulance anymore after that. I mean, it just mm. it, it it really messed him up. So those those two really bother you. And then the other part, you kind of get immune to it, and it is bad because you see it so much, it doesn't even bother you. You just going, it's like going to Kroger and picking up meat. You know, it's 
it doesn't bother you. And then you bring it home and like yeah. say, you know, your wife cut a finger and you look and that ain't nothing. <laughs> and, and, and that is not the response no, they're looking for. No, that's not for. what they want. No, no. And, you know, it is. But you, you get programmed like that, you know, yeah. and you say, oh, you know, just run some water on you. You'll be all right. You know, put some pressure on you. Know? It's, no, I need some attention. You know, you're like, well, that's a no transport. I don't need to look at that. <laughs> ah, ah, you're a no transport, baby. Sorry. Right. It's not an open fracture. Don't even. Right, fall. right. Can't and you like, see I'm watching TV? And like, you know, but even in high school, we were playing ball. Coach told you if you're not bleeding, you ain't hurt. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a philosophy. Yeah. And that's how, you know, we were trained. That's true. That's true. Chris, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? <clears throat> yeah, I, I uh, uh, will always remember the first run that I had uh, uh, as a certified paramedic. And uh, uh, we arrived, and it was a, a small child, probably 12 months to 14 months or so. And <clears throat> the parent – had taken a screwdriver and stuck it through, it was actually through the eyeball of that baby. Uh, the The father had done that, and him and the mother were uh, arguing or fighting, and, and and for whatever reason, he chose to do that. And and I remember riding all the way to the hospital and uh, trying to. With the to keep the screwdriver from moving any more than necessary, but uh, of course, those of you that have ridden in ambulances realize just how rough they ride anyway. Um, and that baby was just in so much pain and uh, trauma that uh, I, I really began to question if this was the profession that I wanted to do or not because uh, that took an awful lot out of me. Um, Fortunately, the baby lived. Uh, it was blind uh, in in that eye, of course, but uh, it it just uh, was so uh, uh, sad and and uh, to to experience something of that nature. Of course, we had to call the police, and they came out and arrested uh, the guy, and, and I think he's still in prison. Uh, but. Uh, 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 some of those type of incidents, and as Byron was saying, uh, uh, can make you calloused uh, in other aspects of, of, of your life. But uh, uh, but that's something that I've, I've always um, uh, made me even more partial towards small children. So, gentlemen, I've got a question for you. Um, as we mentioned earlier, when Chuck did the introductions, you guys are a couple of African-American gentlemen that were uh, some of the first to be hired on the Dallas Fire Department. And uh, uh, I'm somebody that is really interested in history, and civil rights is something that's always intrigued me, you know, because a lot of that stuff was going on when I was growing up as a young man. Uh, I know that uh, both of you were very involved with the Black Firefighters Association. I think, Crest, you were actually uh, the president of the BFFA for uh, a period of time. Um, I think a lot of people um, 
are always wondering why. Why do we, why do we need three labor organizations? Because uh, we have the Dallas Firefighters Association, which is the largest employment or employees uh, group. And then we have the Hispanics Firefighter Association and the BFFA. And, um, um, you know, a lot of people feel like if the three would unite, which I think the, probably the three do unite on certain things. Uh, but if you were to, to, to be able to speak to some of these people that wonder why, why was there a need to form the, the Black Firefighters Association? And uh, maybe you could address that. And maybe you could then address um, some of the um, uh, advancements that were put into place uh, or that are enabled people's careers to uh, prosper. Uh, would either one of you like to speak to that? Yes, I'd be glad to, uh, to share uh, my, my feelings regarding uh, what I, I felt was the need uh, for that. And, and to give an analogy, uh, my daughter, I had a, uh, I have a daughter, and uh, as she was growing up, my wife insisted on her having a black dial, which were not on the retail market. Uh, it was very, very difficult to find a black dial. Of course, Barbie and uh, Ken and uh, all the the dials that uh, that were not of color. Um, now. One who is not of color might ask the question, well, what difference does that make? Um, it The difference is in the fact that um, it's important to see yourself in something to progress. Uh, when uh, uh, Barack Obama became president, the significance of an uh, African-American person seeing an African-American president provides the type of confidence to move forward and to be uh, as outstanding as you can be. If you grow up and if every time you turn around, uh, you don't see anybody that looks like you that is successful, then that makes a, um, uh, it, it makes it very difficult for that person to overcome some of the obstacles that they're faced with. And uh, I think that um, with the fire department, I think I mentioned before that uh, we were the uh, one of the first classes to um, uh, have mandatory paramedic school where you had to pass. But we were also one of the first classes, and Byron, you can probably uh, uh, vouch for this, where the city of Dallas had made the decision to hire in in all hirings at that time, half of the class, 50% of the class, had to be minority, um, and uh, either Hispanic or uh, African American or Asian or what, whatever the case was, uh, that fem uh, female, um, that uh, half of the class had to be made up of minorities for the very reason that there was such a shortage uh, within the Dallas Fire Department, police department as well, but uh, and it took uh, uh, decisions and, and procedures of that nature in order to allow uh, uh, p 
people such as myself, uh, who I, I'm thankful that I had the opportunity where I might not have had the opportunity, had there not have been a certain amount of pressure that was put on the city. And this pressure comes from organizations which can uh, promote uh, the benefit uh, of their own uh, and uh, therefore uh, organizations such as the Black Firefighter Association is, is going to address sensitive issues to African-American uh, firefighters. And it's just, uh, 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 for lack of a better term, it's a necessary evil, you know, to uh, uh, people that aren't of color uh, possibly, but, uh, but to those of us who are African-Americans can truly say that organizations like that have allowed us to be able to accomplish and do the things that we were able to do. Well said. Byron, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, respect. through my experience, um, I mean, I knew guys that might have gotten in trouble and go through uh, the local 58 and ask them for assistance. And nine times out of 10, they would turn them down. I mean, they just, they were not there for them. I mean, uh, we were paying money just like everybody else. And I'd seen some guys did some horrible stuff and they backed them all the way. Then they had some guys do some minor stuff and they refused to, you know, to help them. Then you're out there on your own. And, um, uh, Chris had, uh, uh, alluded to earlier when we hired on, there was no such thing as a black officer and it was nobody you could turn to. And it was very few people you can go to just ask for, you know, any kind of, Hey, you know, what did you do in this situation? What did you do in that situation? You know, you had to learn on the fly. And so if you were the type that, um, couldn't, uh, stand the pressure they were putting on you, then you were going to get in a lot of trouble. Um, I was blessed with uh, the ability that I could, I mean, I always could talk my way out of anything. Or, you know, if I wanted to make you mad and you're trying to make me mad, I guarantee you I'll get to you before you get to me. And that helped me a lot through because I went to some stations where I came into situations where, I mean, they were just being outwardly racist. I went to threes one time uh, subbing for um, Sherry Wilson. I mean, her used to sub for each other. We went back to school. And that first, I got in that morning and me and, and um, uh, samples, he swung in. And I saw the guy walking around asking everybody in the station, how do you want your eggs? Never came to us. So when it came to eat, we went in there to go eat. And so I picked up a plate. He said, well, you didn't tell us what you want. Us. You didn't ask me. I said, I ain't got no invisible ink on. And he said, well, those are my eggs. I said, well, they're not right now. So I, went, I, you know, I put my finger on them. I said, These are mine now. And, you know, just, you know, stuff like that. Where there was nobody I could go say, hey, you know, they're, they're doing this to me, doing that. You had to do it on your own. Um, now these guys, they have associations that they know that they have their best <clears throat> interests at hand. Um, and that's why I feel like every association that, you know, if, if you're black and you're going to an association that doesn't have your best interests and they think that what you're saying is, you know, it's really nothing. You can't get anything done from that. So that's yeah. why I feel like the Black Firefighter Association for me, well, I, I didn't have to use them, but I was used by them to help other people. And I'm, and I'm appreciative of that. Right. Well, that's, that's interesting. I appreciate both your perspectives on that. Both of you guys, uh, you know, of course, I've known Byron for years, you know, and, and I've known of Creston for years. And both of you guys have, you know, stellar reputations, you know, amongst uh, all your peers in the in the fire department. And uh, I think for the listener that, that maybe had never considered those perspectives, I think it's uh, – hopefully it's uh, – 
eye-opening, you know, to sit back and try to look at things through somebody else's field of view. Chris, um, before we started the show today, uh, and before we had turned on the recorder, um, you had answered a uh, question I think Red had asked you, You were, and it spun off into a story about something that happened to you once involving a noose. And I thought that was interesting. I was wondering if you could uh, recount that story for our listeners. Sure. Uh, Early on in my career, very early, uh, I was at a station. And uh, having been there for maybe two shifts or three shifts, uh, uh, in fact, what was – what really struck me as as being strange is that the captain of that station never spoke to me for three shifts. It was uh, it took three shifts before he ever acknowledged me. Uh, he never said hello or what have you. But uh, at any rate, uh, I had gone to to my bed, and on my bed was a hangman's noose. <clears throat> now, when I saw it, I. You know, I, I I had to to try to uh, to think it think it through because my first reaction it, it made me very angry, but then I got to thinking that well, maybe I can use this as a learning experience, uh, not only for myself but for the people involved. And so what I did is that uh, I simulated a hanging with that noose, uh, with a chair, and I made it look like I had hung myself. So that when they came back to the bedroom, the first person that saw me was screaming and hollering <laughs> and ran over and grabbed me in hopes that he could save my life. And, uh, of course, as he was touching me and, and the others were, were coming back to the bedroom, then I was laughing as well. Um, and that moment uh, was so special because they realized that it was not good judgment on their part to do that. And, uh, and I'm, we became best of friends from that point on. Uh, and I think that they learned a lesson from that. And the lesson I learned is that, uh, uh, if sometimes if you take the high road that, uh, you can resolve a situation much better than, than, uh, just allowing your bitterness to, uh, uh, to take over the situation. <laughs> Well said. Very interesting. Um, I have come across some guys that I've became good friends with. And once I got to know them and start talking to them, finding out that they've never worked with a black person. And mm. any act, they ain't never gone to school with a black mm. person. And it was totally different for them. Mm. And I come from an Army background. My dad was Army. I was used to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, integration. So I didn't see that. And, but, they still, some of them to this day, you know, they still look down on you like, you know, I'm still better mm. than you. And, you know, that kind of, it kind of bothers you when you're really looking at it. Wait a minute now, I trained you, but you better than me. So, <laughs> you know, and you have to look at them and you just shake your head. But they have, some of them, they just, they're oblivious. They don't, they don't have a clue. They, they are. And <clears throat> they may uh, be oblivious because of that lack of integration. I think also maybe in some cases a lack of education, and I'm going to tell a story on myself in that regards. Uh, Mike Otto and I were in rookie class 203 together, and there was an incident where a white member in our class 
made a noose, I think probably out of that rookie rope mm-hmm. or, or something. And um, then one of the black members in our class got offended. And so these two were, you know, having a big verbal fight, nearly came to blows. I didn't understand why I didn't understand what the issue was. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand why a hangman's noose would be offensive to anybody. And that was literally a hole in my education, you know, mm-hmm. that I just literally didn't have any understanding of the cultural background and issue there. So it's unfortunate. We've got a lot of uh, history to learn, mm-hmm. I think. If, if I could mention, um, uh, Chuck, that uh, – one of the the reasons that has allowed me to possibly be more objective than than maybe a lot of African Americans might be, uh, because uh, growing up in Illinois, uh, I had always gone to integrated schools. Uh, uh, the first time that I had an African American roommate was when I came went to college and uh, came to texas uh to go to college yet uh because i i was always in an integrated environment in uh high school i was the only african-american on the football team and we went and played this other school out of town and uh after the game we went to the restaurant and the restaurant owner told the coach that he couldn't serve me in the restaurant. <clears throat> the coach, without batting an eye, said, well, if he can't eat in here, none of us will. And the whole team got up and left. Now, how, have that had that have been handled differently, that would have affected my life in, in a, a much more bitter way. But uh, even though it was a hungry ride home, <clears throat> uh the fact that all of my teammates came to me and, and put their hand on my shoulder and told me that, uh, doggone it, it's worth it, uh, um, you know, that uh, that the guy was wrong to, to do that. And, uh, and I guess to this day, it, he's probably recognizes that uh, just how uh, negative uh, something like that is. But I've, I've, I've always remembered – uh, that and how I felt, and I just try to imagine how I would have felt had I have eaten on the bus and the rest of the team had eaten in there. At my 50-year reunion, I I went up to that coach and told him how much uh, I appreciated him handling it as he did. And uh, him and my classmates all remember that very vividly. It was a lesson for everybody. That's exactly what yeah. I was just sitting here thinking, that it was a lesson for anybody that wanted to learn a lesson That's right. that day. You That's know, right. And uh, I think there's good people out there, yeah. you know, and they're, yeah. they come in all, you know, colors and shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. and we have to keep that in mind. And, and uh, a little empathy goes yeah. a long way. And yeah. uh, and trying to, as I'm sure your teammates did, uh, put themselves in your situation. Mm-hmm. Wow, that, yeah. wouldn't that suck? Yeah. You know, and and, and, uh, and we were at such an impressive age. I was 15 at that time. You know, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and uh, you know, teenager and things, and and that's an impressionable time in a person's life because sure. you're trying to find out who you are, and uh, uh, and I, I'm I, I just I thank God every day for for that experience, and that's what allows me to uh, simulate the hanging and uh, that type of thing. If I can teach somebody else or show them or find a way to come together. Was, yeah. this, was this in Illinois or Texas? That that no, this was in, in Illinois. In Illinois. Yeah. And uh, even though we, uh, like I said, we, uh, our school was integrated and things, but, I mean, there were issues and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I had some, some experiences that were unfortunate, but, uh, um, um but as far as on the surface, as far as going to school together and working together and things, it, uh, it was an integrated society. But I didn't go to uh, a lot of the parties for some of the people that weren't of <laughs> <laughs> Tell them where you're from, Otto. Oh, I'm from Indiana. And, uh, yeah, we've got uh, – we had our issues, you know. <laughs> you know I, I, well, I had a, my grandfather pointed out to me, and of course, this isn't about me, so I'm only. I'll just be brief. But he 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 uh, showed me as a young man. He showed me the township charter in which I lived, in which uh, um, blacks were only allowed to live on this street between the railroad tracks on the mm-hmm. on the east and. Thompson Road on the west, and uh, and when I was in high school, I realized that's exactly the way it was, and it was still mm-hmm. that way in 1976. Yeah. And that's something that really got always got my wheels churning, you know, mm-hmm. and thinking about these things. And of course, living through the 60s and and uh, MLK's assassination and and the civil rights struggle and and uh, Bloody Sunday and whatnot. Anyway. I don't want to get off track here, but I know that it's a significant part of you guys' lives and legacy. So I just felt like it was something that, you know, you might want to just comment on and that the listener can walk away from possibly this podcast has looked at things in a different perspective. Thank you for that. So, uh, looking back over your career and the things you learned, uh, is there any words of wisdom you'd like to pass on to maybe the new guys that are just coming on the job? Yeah, um, probably the two most things that I regret. One was was um, applying myself and studying, mm-hmm. and that was my fault because I was. I mean, I had so much fun in elevens. Mm-hmm. I didn't care about making. You know, once I made second driver, I was good, yeah. and I just had a ball. Um, wish I'd have studied and applied myself, um, for promotion. And second thing was, um, I would tell everybody as soon as you come on, as soon as you can max out your 401k. I mean, cause I mean, I, I, I didn't do it to about my last 15 years mm-hmm. and it was good, but I've seen some guys that did it for 20, 25 years mm-hmm. and they had more in the 401 they'd have in the drop. And um, I mean, it's, that's just one thing I wish, you know, other than me just wanting to party and didn't care about anything but that day. Yeah. I could have, you know, just foreseen that. And those were two things that I, I really uh, wish I'd have done different. Yep. But other than that, I mean, it was it was, it was was a great run. I mean, 
I didn't come in mm-hmm. thinking that I was going to enjoy it. I came in because of the days off, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I um, found family. Mm-hmm. And um, at 11s, man, we, I mean, we were just, I mean, we were close. We did yeah. everything together. The new guys now coming on, they don't do stuff like we did. Mm-hmm. Um, if we went out, played, we were going to go party. Everybody went. Yeah. Uh, we'd have picnics together. I mean, we did everything together. And the guys now, they're more like the police department where they just come in and just leave. Um, and that's one thing I did learn about on the police department. Uh, what's so hard about that job is the public doesn't like the police department. Mm-hmm. And policemen don't like each other. I mean, you don't see groups of policemen just hanging like you will firemen. I mean, yeah. if you ever notice that, mm-hmm. you won't see them doing that. And they just, and yeah. that's what I just, I was just blessed that I did become a fireman and I really enjoyed it. I had a great time and learned a lot, learned a lot of great people. That's great. Crest, any, anything you'd like to pass along? Yes. Much, uh, much like what uh, Byron was saying, uh, uh, my initial reason for joining the fire department, uh, mainly had to do with the time off. Um, but it didn't take long for me to realize that, uh, um, that this was going to be uh, one of the best decisions I've ever made. And now that I'm retired, I can confirm that it was the best decision that I ever made regarding my my career and, and, and my life. Uh, it, the uh, fraternal relationships and, uh, amongst uh, each other uh, is, is just so special. And, um, I think that as I, uh, as I did promote, uh, it gave me an opportunity to, uh, to learn as well as, uh, uh, as to lead. I, I always wanted to lead and provide leadership, but, uh, but, uh, one of the things that, uh, I think is extremely important to learn and that I learned is that uh, rank and rank and intelligence don't run parallel. Uh, I think that you, you have to realize that just because you're a, an officer doesn't mean that uh, you can do something that a private can't do. And uh, uh, I think that's uh, uh, is a, a great lesson uh, for uh, any fireman uh, to realize that uh, uh, you have protocol and paramilitary organizations, but uh, rank and intelligence don't run parallel. And uh, uh, but I'm thankful for the experience and so thankful that. Uh, um, that I was here in Dallas and the friendships and even the, the, the negative experiences that turned into positive, such as uh, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, this captain never spoke to me for three shifts, the first three shifts I was there. But around the fifth shift, when we had a fire, he grabbed me and said, stay with me, son. I got you covered. And that's that's what it's all about. Is that uh, uh, well, that we are, the brotherhood or sisterhood uh, that we have within the department is so so very very special. And I'm thankful that I experienced it. So tell me, tell me what happened on October 2019. 2019. It was, I, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like, I got a little 
Not it, that, it was a bad God. heart attack. Touch yeah. and go. Really? Go My ahead. heart stopped beating three times. They revived me three times. Wow. Uh, I, I was going to work out at the Y mm-hmm. uh, over uh, on Hampton right down mm-hmm. from uh, 49s and 40s. And I went in there, and I felt a little queasy. And uh, uh, one of the trainers that's there had, you know, because I'd go in there. I'd go in there three times a week. But he said that, uh, he said, Creston, are you all right? And, you know, I mumbled something, uh, you know. And uh, next thing I knew, uh, I was sitting in the ambulance. They went ahead and called the ambulance because I I had I'd, started to pass out or, or vomited. And when I was in the ambulance, I was just in there long enough conscious to, to say, can you get my keys out of the locker? And then boom, that was it. Uh, 40s uh, was an ambulance that picked me up. And um, they transported me uh, to Charlton Methodist, uh, which was the closest hospital. When I got into the emergency room, my heart stopped. Mm. <clears throat> They had CPR, and uh, um, uh, and I survived that. They sent me to the cath cath lab, cath, cath lab, lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after twelve hours in the cath lab, my heart stopped again. They CPR, wow, brought me back. Uh, they sent me to ICU. And uh, by that time, uh, the doctors had told my wife and said, well, uh, we don't think he's going to make it. Mm. And uh, heart stopped again, third time. And then uh, mysteriously, the, what came to the doctor's mind, and, uh, and, and even, even he and she, the, the two doctors that were there, Acknowledge that uh, it was it wasn't them that that's taking credit for it. You know, oh, good yeah. Lord, you know, he oh, was yeah. he was controlling this. But he had this thought: Why don't we get a bigger pump, heart pump? <clears throat> so uh, they they didn't have one in the hospital the, the size that they needed for me, uh, and uh, so they sent off for one. And Baylor gave them this gigantic heart pump you know it was the biggest that charlton methodist had ever put in a patient hmm. and i asked him i said well, why was that you know uh, i mean i didn't ask him at the time I said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, after the fact yeah this was, yeah and uh and he had said he said that my height had a lot to do with mm-hmm. it you know being so mm-hmm. tall or what have you but uh i'm sure there's taller people than me that had heart attacks <laughs> but uh but anyway when they installed that you know my heart's been ticking ever since hmm. And, uh, and of course that has become my testimony is the fact that the good Lord just said, well, I'm not ready for you yet, Chris. Uh, you know, you got some work to do, you know, and that's what I've been doing. And I share that story with, with everyone that, uh, uh, that I come in contact with. That's amazing. How are you Uh, feeling now? Oh, I, I feel great. Yeah. Uh, I've started working out again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't do what I used to do, mm-hmm. uh, but um, I'm able to, to, to work out. And 40s had a, a uh, fire department coordinated with them and things. So they had a kind of reunion for us to come together. Uh, which is really nice. And they so you got the, to uh, see the paramedics that actually oh, yeah, made yeah, the call? The, the, the ones okay. that, that yeah. were on the call and, and, and uh, the engine crew. Ah, 
That way he did uh, at the time. So your, your son, son was at 40s at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. at 40s. It wasn't his shift, mm-hmm. but he mm-hmm. was at 40s mm-hmm. at that time. What a twist, you know, from all those years on the ambulance to well, yeah, be yeah, treated by a fire department. Right. Uh, well, that's, that, that was the point that I was yeah. making is that I've been on the other side yeah. of it for so long. Yeah. Now I find out what it's like to be on the receiving end <laughs> and how important it is. And, and, and it was from those guys in handling me like they did. Yeah. Because, you know, when the CPR hit, by the time I, mm-hmm. I got to the emergency room, you know, it uh, obviously they prolonged it enough mm-hmm. to where uh, I could make it to that. But uh, Did they know you were a firefighter at the time or retired? Yeah, they knew when they saw my name and things because okay. my son was, uh, even though he was oh, on another right, shift, right. you know, we have the same name, then uh, they they realized that. And, uh, uh Wow, I, I, I just, uh, uh, you know, just I'm so thankful uh, for that opportunity. And now my wife passed away last year mm-hmm. on Mother's Day. Yeah. And uh, my daughter, Chelsea, mm-hmm. is the one that found her because I had left, left the house for something and, and – uh, she was bringing flowers and food over mm. to for Mother's Day. Yeah, and my wife was uh, was in the bathtub, you know, uh, unconscious, or she mm. passed away. And my, and my daughter, who is a uh, undercover officer with uh, Dallas, she works for the uh, U.S. Marshals. Basketball player. Yeah. Really, I didn't know she was a police officer. Yeah. Okay, Miss yeah. Baylor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And. And got her law degree this past December. Oh, wow. yeah, she went to law wow, school. Good for her. And, uh, yeah. um, and, and she told me, she said, Daddy, I, I, I thought I'd seen it all, but I, you know, it, mm-hmm. uh, and, and she's been undergoing therapy and things, you know, from that. And, and of course, my wife was there when I had the heart attack and things. And, and of course, she's a strong mm-hmm. Christian woman anyway. Yeah. So, you know, God was ready for her. But, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the key is that, you have to, uh, a, a true believer has to accept God's will, you know, yeah. without understanding it. You know, we're not, we're not going to understand those things until, you know, that day that we're there or, or you know, when, when, when we're, we go home. And, uh, but to be able to accept things that you don't understand is, is, true, uh, uh, is the true challenge. I'd like to thank Byron and Creston for joining us today and sharing their stories. It was one of the great privileges of my career to be able to work with so many great men and women that I really consider just the salt of the earth. These guys certainly fit in that category. A couple of notes. For those wondering why there was laughter when Creston mentioned that the Milwaukee Bucks signed Lou Alcindor instead of him, Lou Alcindor is better known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Also, I want to stick a Do Not Try This at Home warning label on this episode for all you young and still working. I'm referring specifically to tamper with drug tests, which will get you fired faster than who to thunk it. And also be careful about going overboard on water fights. And for Pete's sake, don't gamble at the station. In fact, don't gamble anywhere and you'll be better off. Apologies for taking a parental tone. 
but it comes naturally because for most of the years of my life now, I have either been in the role of parent of children or in the role of chief, both of which are frankly exactly the same thing. As always, there's more information on the website firehousetalk.com, including photos of today's guest. And if you'd like to reach out to me about a story idea, you can send me a message there or on social media. For those that don't know, the Dallas Firefighters Museum is open. Check out the museum's website at dallasfiremuseum.com for current operating hours and other information. We've got some great docents who will be happy to give you the grand tour. Until next time, y'all stay safe out there. That is all. KKN 377 Fire Department, City of Dallas.